Thank you so much, Charlotte and Victoria, for leading us this morning in worship. I appreciate y'all. Um, we were going to try something a little different today to where uh, I'm going to uh, preach after uh, the offertory. Um, and I'm excited for today's message because this is going to be the last of our Genuine Faith series. So uh, this is a series that we've talked about for the last few weeks. It was a branch off from John chapter 4. I told you that uh, every so often we're going to take breaks from uh, the Gospel of John and talk about different things. And this one has gone a little bit longer than I anticipated. But one of the reasons why uh, I felt that it was really good for us to walk through this was because I think sometimes we neglect the good things in the Old Testament. I think sometimes we focus so much on the New Testament that we don't glean from what we can learn and apply from the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament takes up the majority of our Bibles and is full of wisdom and incredible stories of God and his faithfulness and his love for us. And so uh, we've gone through uh, different lives, different individuals that have lived genuine faithful lives but we could go on and on for this for weeks or maybe even months but i felt this morning that i want to end this with two different individuals and these individuals are joshua and rahab and i feel like there it's hard to talk about one without talking about the other and so this morning we're going to conclude this series with rahab and joshua we're going to focus a bit more on rahab than joshua because Although her story is rather short in the, the, the story of Scripture and in Joshua, the impact that she has is significant, not only in what happens in Joshua, but even in the lineage of Christ. And so we're going to look at their lives this morning, and we're going to conclude this series with their lives. But just know these aren't the only individuals that have ever lived genuine faithfulness in their lives. There have been others both before and after them, but, but the lessons we can glean from their lives is, is amazing and wonderful. And my hope this morning is that we would learn to be faithful in our lives as, as these individuals were faithful in theirs. And then next week, we'll be back in the Gospel of John. And speaking of next week, one of the things I'm going to ask you all to do is uh, the last few weeks, we've had you guys fill out these, these papers for improvements for FBC Greenland. And some of you guys have turned those in and I so greatly appreciate that. Our leadership appreciates that. Um, however, we're getting to a point where we really need to get those in so we can begin to pray through and discern what are some of the improvements we want to make to our facilities as finances uh, allow for us to. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a little bit of a deadline on this so you guys will know when you need to turn this in by. So I would love these forms to be in by the first week of December. So the first Sunday in December, I would love to take on the rest of those forms so that we can pray through and figure out what are the commonalities and things that we see need to be improved at the church. And so if you don't have one of those forms, they're in the back. There's also some in the front. You could take two or three and fill it out as much as you want. That's great with me. You're not going to hurt my feelings or anybody else's. We genuinely want to get an honest assessment of what you feel like as a church body needs to be improved about our facilities. And then we'll take those, we'll pray through those, and we'll discern a, a list of priority of what needs to be handled first. I know that's kind of strange to talk about that in the preaching portion of our service, but I think it's incredibly important for us to 
be good stewards of the things that, the, that God has blessed us with. And as finances allow, I think there's a lot of incredible things that we can do to our facilities to utilize these things to further God's kingdom here in Greenland, Arkansas. So going and shifting to Hebrews chapter 11, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to be in verses 30 and 31 this morning. And this is going to be a, what I'll call like our summary passage for everything we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to mainly be in the book of Joshua, but Hebrews 11, 30 through 31, give us a good framework as to what we're talking about and why. And so Hebrews 11, 30 through 31 say this. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Will you pray with me as we look at this further? Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, I pray as we work through the conclusion of our series on genuine faith, Father, that we would look at the lives of Joshua and Rahab and, Father, see not only in the way they were faithful to you, but, God, to see the way that you were faithful to them. Father, I pray that we would glean from their lives and and take on the lessons of their living and, Father, seek to apply those in our own. God, that we would see the trust they had in you, God, I pray we would see the obedience they had in you. And God, that we would seek to trust you and be obedient to you in, in every step of our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we explore this text. God, that you would give me the words to speak. And Father, that we would be faithful to the truth of your word. And Father, we thank you for today. And we thank you for the fulfillment of your promises. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So whenever, if you've ever read Hebrews 11, this is considered the hall of faith. And we looked at this very briefly when we looked at Joseph's life. Um, And then we also looked at uh, a a passage similar to this in James chapter 2. So James 2 and Hebrews 11 give us these examples of people who lived their lives faithfully. James 2 focuses more on those who lived authentically with their lives, a living faith, a faith that was, was shown by their action and works. And it's, it's interesting that James used Abraham and Isaac and Rahab as the examples of a faith that works and a faith that is shown in action. But Hebrews 11 gives us this almost this hall of faith of individuals from the Old Testament that display genuine faith in their lives. And in telling these stories, the author of Hebrews, normally what what he does is when he writes these things out, he'll say what they did in the conclusion of their faithfulness. Now, it's interesting to note, though, that with this one, it's a little bit flip-flopped. It, it almost appears as these events should be flipped. See, first Rahab welcomed the spies in peace, and then Jericho fell. So Rahab showed faithfulness even before Jericho fell. However, when we look at the story as a whole, which we're going to do this morning, the, the order of these things makes sense because Rahab let the spies in, Jericho fell, and then Rahab was spared because of her faithfulness and her her obedience. 
and her faithfulness to God as someone who was not an Israelite was remarkable. Her story was fleshed out over the course of this incredible event, and I'm, I'm excited to look at, it, look at it this morning because with everyone else we've looked at, they have been either an Israelite or they've been somebody who had known God prior. But with Rahab, Rahab was a Canaanite. Rahab had no knowledge of God outside the things she heard. She didn't see and experience all these incredible wonders and miracles that God had performed. She had only heard, yet she believed. Does she remind you of somebody? The woman at the well. When I think of the woman at the well, I think of Rahab and the way that they revered God in just hearing what he has done and what he will do. And so when we look at Rahab's story, I feel like it's hard to talk about her story, but not talk about Joshua too. Joshua also exhibited an immense amount of genuine faith in his life as he sought to lead the Israelites after Moses into the promised land. I mean, think about a very, uh, very big pair of shoes to fill Moses' shoes. I mean, that has got to be incredibly difficult to take on that feat, but Joshua didn't do it alone and God equipped him to do the work. Joshua utilizes this absolutely absurd battle tactic as he works to take over Jericho. If you're familiar with the story, uh, they go around Jericho six times and then yell a seventh and then the walls fall. It is absolutely strange the way that God uses these things to make these walls fall, but it's only something that God himself can do. But let's walk through their story and see what we can learn. To give a little bit of background to start, though, it, the book of Joshua is where we're going to be. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, we're going to start in Joshua 2. But I'm going to give a little bit of a background and then kind of summarize a little bit of what's happening up till verse 8 in Joshua 2. So this picks up right after Moses has passed away. And Joshua has been appointed as the new leader of the Israelites and is considered to many as a new Moses. And every time I read about the Israelites in the Old Testament, I always get frustrated so we're not going to get super in-depth of what happened uh, in the years of wandering that the, that the Israelites had in Moses. But here's what you need to know. The Israelites complained a lot. They were not very grateful for what was going on. In fact, because of their disobedience, because of this, this ungrateful heart, God had kept them where they were for such a long time that a whole new generation would raise up to take on the promised land. And part of it is when I look at the way that Joshua led uh, the Israelites into the promised land and what they had to do and the kind of obedience they had to have and trust in the Lord to take over this land, part of me feels like God was intentional with that because the kind of people that, that complained and grumbled and worshiped false idols and witnessed all these amazing things, but yet were still disobedient to God, I don't know if that group of people would have truly been able to be as obedient as this new generation was. But when we look at them, we always think, man, how is it that these people could witness all these wonderful things that God did, but yet still be disobedient? I mean, Moses at one point goes up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, comes back down. We don't think he's gone that long, but they had already made a false idol to worship in his absence. I mean, it's, 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 it's wild to think that, that these people saw Moses part the Red Sea and, and, and God put all these plagues over Egypt and how God delivered them out of Egypt and out of slavery and fed them and provided for them. But yet, they still were disobedient. 
they still fell into sin and they still struggled to trust God. And when we read these books, it's, it's for us, at least for me, I read that and go, man, how could they have missed the mark? How could they have been that disobedient and that ungrateful and that unthankful towards God and what he has done? But here's the reality. Church, we do the same thing. We act and do the same things the Israelites do. We'll, we'll talk about Joshua in a minute, but it's important for us to understand that because of Rahab's story. Is that we complain, we grumble, we whine, we lack gratitude. And yet we may have not seen anyone part the Red Sea. We may have not seen plagues, but, but God has done incredible things in our lives and the lives of others. And we are a witness to what God is doing around us. Yet we still grumble, complain, and we don't fully trust God. We witness all the incredible works of God in our own lives, but yet we constantly seek other things than seek God. We continue to ask God, are we there yet? Will you stop this hard season of my life now? Will you just answer my prayers already? We, we become impatient and whine and feel like it's never enough. And when he doesn't do something immediately or in the way that we want or expect him to move, we give up. We just go, okay, well, maybe God just forgot about me or, you know, oh, it's, it, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm done trying. See, these people waited generations for this promise that they were given to be fulfilled. Right? Think about Abraham all the way back in Genesis. He was promised that, that, his, that his offspring would be as numerous as the scars in the sky and that he would give him a land flowing with milk and honey. But yet it took generations for them to finally get there, led by Joshua. Moses got to see the promised land, but didn't actually get to walk in. But yet these individuals still lived by faith and were obedient, knowing that they may not get to see the promise fulfilled in their own lifetime. That is faith. Faith isn't being obedient when we know what the ending is going to be and when we get to see things play out. Faith is being obedient when we don't get to see how things play out, when we don't have all the details, when we don't have the ending to God's plan. We are to be obedient and to trust God even when we don't know how everything's going to shake out. And so for us, when we look at the attitudes of the Israelites and we look at the attitude of Rahab, we have to understand something that we are to be grateful for the works that God is doing in our lives. That we are to be thankful that he's given us a breath to breathe and, and a place to worship and to be grateful for the things that he is doing in our lives and not to seek out worldly things to, to shape the condition of our heart. And like Rahab, we are to trust God and to trust his word and to be obedient to what he's calling to do, us to do, even when we don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. So let's look at these two instances of faith illustrated in the book of Joshua. First in Joshua chapter 2. So we're here in a little bit of background before we get to verse 8. So this book begins with Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, but it's occupied by hostility from the Canaanites. This is not a land that is just wide open and ready to take on. There's some work that they've got to do. Like Moses before him, jo Joshua sent spies into the city, the city being Jericho. And the spies entered the city, and they stayed at the house of Rahab. The king of Jericho was told the Israelite men came to investigate the land. And the king sent word to Rahab, telling her to bring the spies to him. But Rahab had hidden the men away. She told the king she didn't know where the men were, and told them that they fled at night, but she didn't know where they were going. 
she urged the king to send people after them to catch up to him. So what she's doing is she's trying to avert their attention away from her home somewhere else. And then here we go, picking up in verse 8. Joshua 2, verse 8 says this. Before the men lay down, she came up to, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea before you when the t- you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted or devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For you, the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all whom dealing to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now let's pause right here for a moment. Let's look at verse 8 for a second, kind of going back to this this sediment. Rahab heard of all that God had done through the Israelites as well as others around her. She, she talks about how their hearts are melting. They, they know that, the, that, that God has this land for the Israelites and he is preparing to take it from them. And people in the land are fearful of that. They don't know what's coming, but they know that the God of, of the, the Israelites, this, this God who, who, who parted the Red Sea, who fed them in this very hostile environment, who raised up his people from slavery, is going to deliver them this promised land. And so by faith, she hid these men away as she put her life on the line to protect them, believing in the stories that she had heard. She knew God would take the city just as he had done all these other things before. And, and again, we have to remember, this was someone who wasn't an Israelite. This was someone who did not witness firsthand the things God did in Egypt and beyond. This was someone who had everything to lose by keeping these men safe. Yet, She had faith that God would deliver the city to the Israelites and that she would be spared. I also love the faith of the spies too, if you notice their their verbiage and the words they use. I love when they say, when the Lord gives us the land, not if the Lord gives us this land. Like They know that this is just the first of many places that God is going to overtake for them and deliver to them. They knew and they had faith that God would give them the land that was promised to them. So now in verse 15, let's read on. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built onto the city wall, and she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. 
But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath, and you have made us swear. As she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers searched all along the way, and they found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down to the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given us the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They're like, okay, it's time. Let's go. This is, this is God preparing the way for them to take this land. And now let's skip to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 is where we pick up the story where, where Joshua and the Israelites have arrived to Jericho and they're getting ready to take it. Now, there is a lot of stuff that happens in between. In fact, uh, if you think that the only time that God parted a sea was in uh, Exodus, you'd be wrong. He actually did it again in this first part of Joshua when they were taking the Ark of the Covenant over the Jordan. So starting in verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 6, we'll continue this story. Now Jericho was shut, was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. So they were getting ready for a battle. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given you Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now, I, this, is, this looks like one of the worst battle plans ever. <laughs> I am no tactician. Uh, but Joshua was a military-minded man and had a bit of strategy and skill set to him that was different than other men that God had called to lead the Israelites. Joshua was probably one of the most well-equipped and well-trained men to take on the role that God had called him to. But here's this military-minded man going to this fortified city. It's protected. They're ready to withstand anything the Israelites had to throw at them. But then God tells them to do something that seems, well, a little strange. I'll call it strange. He tells them to walk around the city once a day for six days, then on the seventh day to play music and yell. Now, again, I'm no battle tactician and I'm no strategist, but to me, this this plan sounds terrible. Uh, If I ever tried this in Risk or Settlers of Catan or or Age of Empires, I'd be blown out of the water. Like, I, I, this, this is not a great plan. This isn't even a siege. This is just them walking around the city and only doing it for seven days and then the walls crumble. How does that even work? But by faith, Joshua didn't question these orders. He obeyed. And he gave the orders and did exactly what they were told for six days. And then verse 15 says this. On the seventh day, they rose early and at the dawn of the day, they marched around the city in the, in the same manner they, uh, seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of, of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And so it worked. But we shouldn't be surprised. This was God's plan after all. If this series has taught us anything, is that God is faithful to his promises. And the well-fortified, incredible city fell only by the sound of trumpets and the shouting of his people. This is something only God can do and accomplish. Now, one of the things in this passage, too, that they were given specific instruction to devote everything to destruction except the things that were to go into the treasury of the Lord. This is important because something happens later on where someone disobeys this. And we begin to see what happens when people try to do things by their own plan rather than following what God has called them to. But let's go back to Rahab. What happens with her in this story? Verse 22 says this. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring, uh, bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So this is the story of Rahab and Joshua. Now Joshua's story doesn't end here. It continues on. Uh, Joshua continues to take on the land. But this is where their interactions end. But what's fascinating about them is both of them showed genuine lives and God used both of them to fulfill his will in this moment. They both trusted God and they both trusted that he would fulfill his promises. And here's the interesting thing. And this is the thing that just that completely blows my mind when I read this story is that Joshua had witnessed himself all the miraculous things that God had done firsthand while Rahab only heard about it but yet they both still believed and trusted in God and his promises. So what can we learn from these two accounts? What are a couple things that we can take away from their stories? The first is that God uses the most unlikely people to do extraordinary things. God uses the most unlikely people to do extraordinary things. Now, if you were to make a list of the, of the 10 most unlikely people God would use to do his will at this time, Rahab would kind of be near the top of this list, 
right? She seems, it seems very unlikely that God would use a, a Canaanite prostitute living in a city apart from God in a city that worshiped a false idol. But he did. See, Rahab didn't experience any of the incredible things God had did firsthand. She was not a part of God's chosen people in the Israelites. She did not cross the Red Sea. She did not follow God, the godly leadership of Moses and Joshua. She did not witness God's presence at Mount Sinai. She was not in some, in some grand lineage where she came from somebody just prior to her who knew the Lord and loved him and worshipped him. Instead, she heard stories. She heard stories of God bringing his people out of Egypt. She heard of all the wondrous works of God and what he did through his people. She heard of God's promise and knew that this land belonged to them and trusted him. Now, now if you think for a second that God can't use you because of your past or where you live or where you're from, you're wrong. God can use any one of us. And it's not by our own ability that we do anything, but it's God that uses us and equips us to do his work. Rahab was faithful to God and showed her faith through her actions. See, I made a comment earlier that Joshua seemed pretty equipped to do the job that he was assigned to do. When I think about all the people in the Old Testament that have led the Israelites or have done different things, uh, Joshua out of everyone that, that I can think of is one of the only ones who actually seemed like he did the training beforehand to eventually get the job. Now, granted, he still couldn't do it on his own, but it's amazing how God had used his time with Moses to shape and mold Joshua into the leader he would be to then take on the promised land and that God used that for his good and his glory and his divine plan. But here's some other people that God had used who completely were not equipped to do the job, but God equipped them to do it. God used Abraham, an old man who was beyond the age of being a father. God used Moses, a stutterer. God used Jonah, a man who ran from God. He, I mean, when I say ran, I mean, he got on a boat and tried to get as far away from God as possible in the place that he was supposed to go and tell people uh, to repent and believe. Matthew, a tax collector, and Saul, a persecutor of Christians. If God can use all these individuals to do amazing things, to enact his will, to reach the lost, to fulfill his plan, he can use you too. What do all these people have in common? They had faith in God and they were obedient to the things he called them to do. And they didn't rely on their own abilities. God gave them everything they needed. And I think sometimes a lot of us rely on our own abilities or what we have to do the things that God is calling us to do. We think that we aren't smart enough, popular enough, skilled enough, or so on to do what God is asking us to do. I think Ryan Scantling did a good job in fleshing that out a little bit last week when he was here and visited you guys. If you are faithful to what God is asking you to do, he will take care of the rest. If you feel that God is leading you to do something or you, or you, or you want to find a way to serve in a way and, and maybe you don't have the kind of resources you wish you had or maybe you don't have the knowledge or skill set you wish you had, if, if you believe that this, that's an area that God is leading you to serve in, then, then you need to trust God to take care of the things that you lack in. And maybe it's that God will eventually open up an opportunity for you to gain some of those skills, for you to serve in a way that you feel led to serve. Or maybe God is 
is using those things to push you in a direction you didn't know you were supposed to go in. But at the end of all of it, it's not about relying on our own ability or our own strength or our own, or our own skill set. It's about relying on God to do what he's going to do through us and for his kingdom. Genuine faith is a faith filled with action, and Rahab and Joshua showed that. See, Rahab didn't just say she believed in God. She showed it. And in Scripture, she's the first person apart from the Israelites to repent and believe and and trust God. And then what happens with her? What happens with, with Rahab and her life? She then married Solomon, who had a child named Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth. And if you know the lineage of Jesus, you'll see Rahab in that lineage. God used Rahab to be in the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? God uses the most unlikely people to do extraordinary things. So the second thing that we can take away from this passage, and the last thing I believe we could take away from this, is that God does extraordinary things by the most unlikely means. God does the most extraordinary things by the most unlikely means. God never does things the way that we expect him to. Have y'all noticed that? And in, in, when we read scripture or when we read or when we experience things in our own life, there are things that God does that, that for some, some of us, we either don't anticipate or we don't expect. And he does things only in the way that God can. He brought down the walls of this incredibly fortified city using nothing but music and some yelling. God parted the Red Sea to allow his people to walk right through it. God brought Jonah to Nineveh using a giant fish. God gave us salvation through his only begotten son who came in human form and lived as a servant. Jesus fed thousands of people using nothing but a little boy's lunch that consisted of five loaves of bread and two fish. Sure, the Israelites could have done something different to take over Jericho, right? Maybe Joshua could have heard God's plan and went, nah, that doesn't really work logistically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work out something else. Maybe they could have spent more spies in to take out the city from the inside out. Maybe Joshua could have used Rahab as an informant to keep, the, uh, keep information flowing in to come up with a plan of where Jericho was weakest. Maybe she, she could have helped hide people away or take the city from the inside, but he didn't. Instead of doing things he was comfortable with or doing things in ways that were conventional to him, he trusted God and lived by faith. It doesn't always have to make sense. It doesn't always have to, to, tick, to tick every box in our minds of the way that God may work in our lives or in the lives of others. But our duty is not to know the entire picture or to know how every step is going to work out. Our job is to trust the Lord. God in his divine plan sees all things from beginning to end. We only see a small portion. And our duty is not to understand every aspect of God's huge, enormous plan, but to trust him in every step that he, he leads us through. And if you continue to, to read Joshua, you'll see an interesting contrast between this battle, the battle of Jericho, and the battle of Ai. So the point of Jericho was to display God's faithfulness, and all Israel had to do was wait and do what God asked. But the other battle later on in AI is one that displays what happens when we try to do things on our own terms. Remember, I talked a little bit earlier how, how he said that they were supposed to devote things to destruction and then keep the rest for God's treasury. This is where somebody got disobedient. An Israelite named Achan 
uh, or Achan, took some of what was set apart in Jericho, then he lied about it. And this isn't a good move, especially all that God had done for them just before. Israel then goes into battle with, with, uh, with Ai, a place that had fewer people. It seemed easier to take. And basically, they got annihilated. They completely lost this battle. They got whooped. Like, th- this, was, this was not a, 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 a battle that was, that was well fought, and then they, they went back. No, they just they completely and utterly lost on their own. And it was only after humble repentance and dealing with Achan's sin that Israel eventually gained victory. But what does that have to teach us? The point of both these battles was to teach the Israelites that in order to inherit the land, they must be obedient and they must rely on God. They cannot do it alone. So as we close, and as we put a cap on this series, on this series on genuine faith, We've talked about the royal official and the way he trusted God or trusted Jesus to heal his son. We've talked about Abraham and Isaac, how Abraham trusted God with the life of his son and how Isaac trusted his father and trusted the Lord. We've talked about Joseph, who through incredibly difficult circumstances, trusted God in every step that he walked through. Joseph was Betrayed by family, thrown into prison, sold into slavery. We could flip the two events. But then God used him to put him in a level of authority to where he would save his people from certain death, from starvation, from a horrible famine. And then he eventually paved the way for the Israelites to be where they were in Egypt. And then we look at Joshua and Rahab. Joshua, who trusted God in overtaking the promised land, who trusted God in every step that he was called to take to take over this land. And Rahab, who had heard the stories of God and trusted that he would keep her safe and trusted that the land would be overtaken and that it belonged to God. All of these individuals displayed genuine faith and their actions reflected that. They trusted God and they were faithful to do what he called them to do. May our faith look like theirs. Will you stand with me as we have our time of invitation and prayer? God, we thank you for these individuals who showed an innumerable amount of faith. God, we thank you that we don't rely on our own abilities to do the things that you call us to do. God, we cannot function on our own. God, you you use those, Father, who are obedient to you, God, who, who want to serve you. And Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to serve you in the ways that you would call us to. And God, I pray that our, life, our lives would be genuine, that our faith would be real, God, that we wouldn't just say that we know you and love you, but God, that it would be shown in our actions and the way we live and the way we interact with others. God, in our character, in our demeanor, in our hearts, God, that, that, that people would see and believe in you. Father, as they see that our faith is genuine in you, God, that, that we would be good witnesses to you. 
God, help us to submit to you. Father, help us to trust you in the big and small things. And God, I pray during this time of invitation, Father, if anyone needs prayer or they have questions, God, or they want to know what it means to have genuine faith in their own lives, God, I pray that they would feel welcome to come up and, 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 and talk with me. But God, if not now, then Father, they would have a conversation with myself or someone else in leadership later on or whoever invited them to church. And God, that your gospel would be made known to them. And Father, they would be reminded that they don't have to walk through this life alone. So Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that you do. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.